0: Welcome back, glad to have you here, I'm glad to be back. I miss this stuff, it drives me crazy not doing this on a Monday night, I really enjoy it, so I'm glad to be back in the swing of things. Alright, we, back last year in December, on the 17th we finished, well we started this concept of the doctrine of uh, positional truth which includes salvation and experience, or what we're going to call fellowship later on tonight. Um, So just to kind of get your thoughts going back to where we were with the last couple sessions, we had just finished in James the verses 14 and 15, which talks about the process of testation and how a believer is tested and tempted um, to sin and the process that occurs there. And then we came down to this question that, well, if a believer sins, and the penalty for sin is death, why does the believer then not need again to accept Christ as their Savior? So we should have adequately answered that question uh, last session uh, to some degree, at least with some sort of simple answer. Uh, As we continue to build on this parenthetical study of the doctrine of positional truth uh, and fellowship and sin's consequence, we'll get a better understanding of all of those things in a little more detail and harmony uh, throughout Scripture. But basically... Positional truth uh, identifies, uh, and we'll get to that in our review, that we don't have to again accept Christ as our Savior when we sin because our sins are charged or imputed to Him. So to refresh us, we've got two terms that we've been looking at: positionally and experiential. We are using those terms positional in reference to salvation, and experiential in reference to fellowship or relationship. Okay, so when we say position, we're talking about salvation. When we say experiential, we are generally speaking of walk or your relationship with God. Um, Positionally is a reference to one's position in relationship to something else. The believer uh, being positioned in Christ is no longer in death, and experientially is a reference to one's experience in relationship to something else. Being experientially um, in agreement with God is what we call experiential sanctification or fellowship, and in disagreement experientially with God is what we call rebellion and leads to carnality. So we'll explain a little bit more about that tonight. A reminder that pisteos is the word we get for faith, and it means a complete dependency based on response. It identifies a relationship between two or more objects or persons in which one of the objects or persons is completely dependent upon the other for something or action, for example, sitting in a chair. When we use faith, we operate from a divine viewpoint, which is faith-based in nature. It's a process of thought or manner of thinking, which is based upon dependence upon spiritual truth, doctrines of God's world system. That is what the Word of God teaches. When we depend upon that, we see the world under a divine viewpoint. and uh, We understand it under a faith-based concept versus a sight-based concept, which is what we call a human viewpoint, under the premise that all of our analysis is based upon our senses. and When we say sight-based, we're not talking merely just what we can see. We're talking about what we perceive. Um, so the difference between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint is its basis, one being sight, the other being faith. And human viewpoint is that process of thought or manner of thinking which is based on data perceived and developed by the human senses within the realms of this world system. Reminder, just there that the world system is this world system is currently uh, under the control and government of uh, Satan and company, having been granted that privilege by God and divine viewpoint when we understand it in that sense. Um, leads us to understand that God is allowing Him to do that under God's grace and His provision, for the purpose of carrying out the justice of God. All right. Our parenthetical study from last week was under this concept of harmonizing sin's consequence. James's teaching in James one fourteen through fifteen prompted us the question: Does the believer again need to be saved by Christ if he is again spiritually dead, having sinned? The answer to this question is found through harmonizing scripture pertaining to the doctrine of positional truth in order to get a harmony of sin's consequence so by harmonizing scripture we understand the doctrine of positional truth and that allows us to understand what sin does for the believer versus sin does for the non-believer summary of the doctrine of positional truth this is what we ended with um, the last few slides of our last session the doctrine of positional truth identifies any individual who believes on Jesus Christ is placed positionally in Christ by God. Now, I did alter some of the words in here because I didn't like the wordy when I reread it. Um, nothing has been majorly changed as far as what we discussed. Uh, I think I took that part that says placed positionally. I just want to make sure that placed was in there. It wasn't previously. So, you may notice if your notes are slightly different. I've made some additions there just to be a little more specific. Who would have thought I could be more specific? But number two because of the believer's position in christ he is holy and blameless before god number three through his position in christ the believer's present-day act of sin becomes imputed to christ on the cross in 30 a.d number four because of the calvary combat of 30 a.d the work of christ on the cross the believer does not have the ability to suffer spiritual death once more having been born of god after his point of belief The doctrine of positional truth teaches pretty much you're once saved, always saved. You can't lose it. Because it, it identifies what Scripture teaches regarding the fact that when you sin, if you are a believer, your sin is charged to Christ. And so he pays the penalty and the judgment for it versus you having to now pay the penalty for it again. Because he paid the for every sin. Right. Yep. The very point. And with you believing upon him your sin is imputed to him so it's written down as if he is the one that has uh, committed the sin and he has been charged for the cross so yeah Uh, we understood that through uh, first john 3 9 it says if anyone is born of god he cannot sin because god's seed abides in him and he is incapable of sinning that's a rough paraphrase and it may be slightly butchered toward the end there Uh, i'd encourage you to read it again just to remind yourself of what it says uh, but it does identify that the believer has no chance or capability to get charged with sin because he is in Christ. And that is that reference to a position. Here's our positional truth diagram that we created last session. Uh, Jesus said in John 12:32 that if he is lifted up, he will draw all men to the point of the cross. That phrase identifies that they will have to deal with the cross. He's going to bring all men, not physically to that cross on Golgotha, but to the point of having to deal with it personally on their own. Whoever believes, in John 3, 15, we've got the little stick figure kneeling at the cross. Whoever believes is taken out of death and placed into life, which is a reference to John 5, 24, which says that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have eternal life, having passed out of death and being placed into Christ, into life, which is in Christ. Now, we've gone through a number of, well, we have, we've mentioned a number, I guess we, I should say. We've mentioned a number of verses that supported uh, some of these concepts and were references for these concepts. Uh, Ephesians one four says that God gathered us out in Christ, holy and blameless, and the us there is a reference to believers. Believers have been gathered out in Christ, separated from those who are not in Christ and placed in Christ so that they can be identified as being different and holy and blameless in Christ. Now, also, in Christ, the believer has been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 identifies that truth and that concept. And 1 Peter 2.9, which is a reference to Israel being a people for God's own possession and being attributed to um, the Gentiles as well, is not the proper reference here. It is the same exact phrase that is used in Titus 2. Um, I, need to, I think it's 2.14 that has that. So if you want to write that down, 1 Peter 2.9 and Titus 2.14 have the same exact phrase. And for some reason, I put 1 Peter 2.9. Which is a reference to the same thing, uh, basically, but it's coming from more the angle of this is Israel being a royal priesthood, uh, a royal nation, uh, priesthood, and a people for God's own possession. The Gentiles had the same statement made towards them, and we kind of got to that point when we mentioned this last session, but I wanted to just be clear and accurate on this. This reference is towards the Israel side of things, the uh, Titus 2:14 reference is to the Gentile side of things. Someone verify 14 for me. I'm pretty sure that's what it is, but if you're looking it up. It says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself people that are his very own, eager to do what is good? Okay, so uh, New, New American Standard has the same phrase there as it does in First Peter 2-9, that people of his own or for his own possession. That, word, that phrase comes from the word periusion, which means a dot encompassed by a circle. that's why we've got this circle up there and the arrow goes into the circle identifying that we are placed into Christ and we are a people of his own possession. All those in Christ belong to Christ in Romans 8:29 uh, and 30 yeah 29 and 30 I don't know why that doesn't sound right but it's right. Um, it says for those whom God foreknew he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that Christ may be the firstborn among many brethren. That's a reference to this same concept, that Christ is the one who owns and um, is a part of this group. Um, so Titus 2.14 is our reference there, along with 1 Peter 2.9 for the is or the, the Jewish side of things, but I wanted to make sure I clarified that because for some reason 1 Peter 2.9 came in instead of Titus 2.14. Now for some reason my mouth doesn't want to go so I can fix it. <laughs> those mice are going... <laughs> I there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I love those mice. I don't know It's only used to do it when I'm not around. I don't know what to say. I don't want them, and <laughs> I don't like them. <laughs> Okay, so our positional positional truth diagram starts with this first circle. Uh, we will develop a second circle tonight as we get into this concept of fellowship or experiential truth. Because of the doctrine of positional truth, the believer can have confidence in his once and for all eternal salvation, salvation which is provided and maintained because of the imputation of the individual's sin upon the Christ in thirty AD. All of humanity's sin was atoned for upon the cross, however, Only those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation are placed into the Christ. Uh, Emphasis being on the concept that the role there is to be the Messiah. Only those in the Christ are saved because their sins are imputed to the Christ and they are not charged as having performed sin. The Christ has been charged already. Jesus is that Christ. He is the Messiah. The one that got anointed to take away the sins of the world and be the sacrifice. So, it's that... It hinges around that concept of the Christ. And without being placed in the Christ, who was Jesus of Nazareth, you have no chance at salvation. The doctrine, position, and truth identifies that believers are once saved, always saved, which is a truth known as eternal security. Again, because the sin of the believer is charged to Christ, and if his sin is charged to Christ, he cannot be judged for it. Therefore, no spiritual death occurs again. Um, Through understanding the believer's position in the Christ, we have assurance that the believer's sin does not remove from him the spiritual life which God sacrificed his Son to provide. However, the believer's sin does accomplish something within his experience or relationship with God. This is where we left off last session. So we will be picking up now in a side study of the Doctrine of Positional Truth. In order to understand the consequence of believer's sin within the believer's experience or relationship with God, the teaching of Jesus in John 13 regarding the washing of feet must be thoroughly examined. In doing so, scripture reveals the process which Jesus identifies as a necessary part of the believer's life. This is one of my favorite ones to ever get into, the process of feet washing. All right, side study number two, doctrine of foot washing. This is a doctrine that teaches us uh, of something, and we'll get through part one tonight, and we'll see a little bit more part two next session. John 13, 2 through 4, the next few slides will just be verses. If you want to yeah, I'm going to flip in your Bible to that uh, just so you can keep your own translation working in your head and kind of stick with it there. Um, I, I'd advise you to just because we have uh, about five or six slides of just scripture at this point. John chapter 13, starting in verse 2. Most of us are probably fairly well familiar with this story, or at least i have heard it a number of times. It typically takes on the, the concept of servitude or the attitude of servitude, which is a part of what it is discussing. But without the original languages, we do miss a lot of what Jesus is attempting to teach here. Um, it's one of those things that's kind of like, oh, well, duh, this makes more sense now when you see it in the original language. So that hopefully will ac- be accomplished for you tonight. Um, it was very refreshing to, to look at again and, and just to get the reminder of truth for me this afternoon as I was putting together tonight's notes. So, John 13, verses 2 through 4. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured, verse 5, Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded, so he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, "This is Peter speaking." Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, "What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter." Uh, it's almost like Jesus says the same thing to us when we read it in English. What I'm talking about right now, you're not going to understand, but hopefully hereafter tonight's session, we'll get a much better understand that from the original languages. Peter says to Jesus, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And that's John chapter 13, verses 8 through 9. Verses 10 through 11, Jesus says to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean twelve through fifteen. So when he had finished so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then the Lord and teacher wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. That's where we get the attitude of servitude, uh, as I like to call it, or this concept that you are supposed to be able to wash another person's feet. Uh, metaphorically speaking. Through washing the feet of his disciples, Jesus teaches three truths relative to the Christian life. The first one we see quite obviously, serve one another. If the teacher and Lord of all is willing to stoop down and wash feet, then so willing should be the teacher and Lord's servants, and so willing should be you and I. Obviously, feet, feet washing is not a part of our typical cultural norm these days. Uh, however, the the concept is teaching, that we are supposed to not have authority or self-promotion in the way of us serving others. The other two two truths taught by Jesus deal with the doctrine of positional truth, which is what we're in a side study of. So this is a side study of our side study, the doctrine of foot washing. Notice Jesus' words, and I believe this is verse 8, to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus uses the word nipsu or nipso to identify that Peter needs his feet to be washed in order to have part with Jesus. Nipso is an active aorist verb which literally means to wash a part of something for the purpose of cleansing it. Okay, notice that word part. Jesus' statement is a response to Peter's statement when he said, Never shall you wash my feet, which should be in verse 7. Literally transcribed, Peter's statement reads a little more emphatically from the Greek. Not even unto the end of the ages will you have the possibility of washing my feet. There is no chance until hell comes around, and not even after hell comes around, that you have a chance at washing my feet. That end of the ages is a reference to the completion of God's dispensational framework, or the concept that God has set up different time periods in which he deals with different people in different ways and requires different things from him. Easy one to see. God dealt with Israel different than he deals with the church. Pretty simple to see that. Um, What's that? The end of the ages. Yeah, it's that word never in English comes from a, a phrase that if I remember correctly is ume, I'm not going to remember the whole thing, but it's like five words. And it's, it's basically of, not of me, of the ages, and of the ionis, which is the end of the ages or the completion of the ages. So when all the periods of time that God has set up plans for man have been concluded, which we'll identify as the end of uh, the judgment, where Lucifer and company, or Satan company, are cast in the pit of hell, and all unbelievers are also. At that point, when the, God's plan for humanity that He has revealed up until this point is taken care of, and we enter into what we call eternity future, that's what He's saying. It's not even not until, not even until that point when we enter eternity future, will you eternity future will you have the possibility of washing my feet. That possibility comes from the subjunctive mood which identifies having the mere capability to do something or not do something. So it's it's a pretty emphatic statement by Peter. Uh, he is, I got to say, I, I'm i not sure to be proud of Peter or embarrassed by Peter um, or both. And I think it's a combination of admirable embarrassment um, mm-hmm. because I, I think I can relate to him in some areas. But he, is, as you have probably well, well found out in your studies already, he is the most, rambo kind of guy out there i mean he's like let's go get him you know and it's like whoa okay then we back off right Um, so i guess he's only half a Rambo. we'll call him ram so so ram just kind of steps in there and says you know not even till the end of the ages not even till eternity comes will you have the chance to wash my feet you're not going to come close to that you are the lord and teacher you you do not have you don't have to do that and you shouldn't be doing that Um, it's a pretty emphatic statement it actually makes me laugh when i read it in, in the greek but Jesus' response to Peter identifies two things. One, and this is verse 8 that we're talking about, Peter needs to be partially washed. Number two, remember that's that's that word nipso, which refers to a partial cleansing. Number two, without that partial washing, Peter can have no part or share with Jesus. Interesting. That word part, I'm not sure when our slide comes, so I don't want to jump too far ahead. That word part means to have a share like a partner would have a share in a a business this being the case that peter needs to be partially washed and that without that partial washing peter can have no part with or share with jesus peter quickly replies okay fine a ram quickly replies lord then wash not only my feet but also my hands and my head okay if my feet are dirty my hands must be dirty my head must be dirty wash all those too and now jesus comes back and is is harmonious with the typical dialogue structure of jesus and peter's conversations Jesus turns the tables on Peter once again in verse 10 when he says, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Jesus uses the word le luminos another fun word, which was translated as bathed into English. Le luminos is a perfect passive participle, which means cleansed completely in a completed action in the past with results continuing on. Okay, now tense in Koine in Greek deals with Type of action, not time of action. The time is a, a part of it, that it's past or present or future, but the type of action is a continuous action or a past completed action or that kind of a thing. Um, so when we look at Le Luminos, and we'll get to the next slide here in just a second, we need to understand a little bit about what that, that tense is showing us. Um, Le Luminos is, is probably very accurately translated as bathe into English. It's probably uh, the only way i think you can make that better would be to sing completely bathed or cleansed either one um it, it's a pretty good understanding of, of what the word ver- of the what the word is saying um, now le luminos again is a persif- pa- perfect passive participle which means cleansed completely in a completed action in the past with results continuing on that's the word jesus used to describe peter as having been bathed or having been le luminost. we said it was perfect tense And the tense is used to identify the type of action in Koinic Greek more so than, than the time of action. There are many tenses and combinations of tenses. Simply describe the perfect tense. Identify as a completed past action, which produced results that continue on after the action has been completed. So we've got our blue timeline there. We've got our red dot, which represents the completed action. The action started, it went through its process, and it finished. Once that action is finished, it produced a result. That result, or the results of that action, continue on. There's no statement towards when those results stop. The understanding is that it is a, an action which has made everlasting or eternal results. They continue on forever. Le luminos is a perfect tense participle, which means cleansed completely in a completed action in the past with results that continue on. Now, obviously, we don't need one back in our lifetime, right? I mean, we can probably get at best three or four days before it's too much for us or for those around us, yeah. or probably both. We'll probably get a day in before it's too much for those around us. But, but there's this representation through this perfect tense that Jesus isn't speaking here of being bathed or of taking a bath. He's identifying something else. And I think what we'll find, and I know what it teaches at least, is that we're changing this metaphor of the feet washing to this concept that relates now to salvation and to fellowship God. So, Le Luminas as a perfect tense participle, identifies that it is a completed action in the past with results that continue on. Now, it's also in the passive voice. The subject is acted upon by the action. Okay, Le Luminos being in the passive voice identifies that the subject, being Peter in this case, is being acted upon to be cleansed completely. Okay, so now it gets a little awkward when you take it into the literal wording of it, that someone is bathing Peter and cleansing him completely in a way that he will be completely cleansed with the results that that complete cleansing or him being clean will continue on forever. If that were the case with the actual bath, we'd have a little bit of an awkward situation. But being the case that this is not talking about that, it's using that as a metaphor to describe and teach them something else. We understand through this concept that Jesus is saying that if you are cleansed completely, referencing salvation, you don't need to be cleansed completely again. The reference of the passive voice, or the identification of the passive voice, identifies that you are acted upon to be cleansed completely. We cannot cleanse ourselves. We must be acted upon. We are placed into Christ, and that secures our holy and blameless status. That is done by God through the power of the Holy Spirit to create us and cleanse us completely. We did no part in that other than other than to say, I accept your son as my Savior. Cleanse me. And God did the cleansing. Okay, so leluminos is the type of cleansing which Jesus says Peter does not need. And that cleansing, again, is a complete cleansing and a completed action in the past with the results continuing on. If he doesn't need it, that must mean he already has it. And in verse 10, we get that clearly understood as well. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Jesus identifies Peter as one of the clean ones, and also identifies that there is some or one among them or him who are not completely clean. And verse 11 identifies that he is referencing Judas Iscariot at that point. It's an interesting thought. Also an interesting thought. (laughs) Because you get those who say and understand that Satan actually possessed Lucifer and indwelled him so that then he, or Satan, yeah, not Lucifer, sorry. Satan possessed (laughs) Lucifer and (laughs) now you're all really lost. and completely, no, I'm not going there. Um, Satan possessed Judas. And there are some that teach that and say that. I, I believe scripture indicates that Satan put into Judas' heart, or norms and standards, the plan and the uh, process by which to carry out the plan to betray Christ. But there are those who say that um, Lucifer actually indwelt and possessed Judas and caused him to do what he did. If that's the case, then he couldn't have been a a believer. Uh, I don't think Scripture supports that theory. I'm not sure Scripture teaches that Judas was a believer, although um, in a study between the giving up of the soul and the giving up of the spirit, if I remember it, Correctly, I can't be able to find it right there. Um, If I remember correctly, I believe Judas gave up the spirit, which would identify that he had a spirit to give up. Um, That's a whole other story I can tell by the blank looks that we probably haven't gotten into yet. Um, And even that's not a dogmatic study. So whether Judas was a believer or not, we don't really know. This is referencing that at least at this point, he was not completely clean. Meaning that he had not had a complete bath. Because of the reference here. So at this point, I would say no, Judas was not a believer. Judas was not saved. Now, I don't believe because of the grace of God that that means he could not be saved. and Or that he was not saved when he committed suicide um, and fell upon, or hung, hanged himself slash fell upon the rocks. Yeah, yeah, there's there's kind of a, I haven't looked at it, that in Greek yet. I want to because it's kind of a disharmonious yeah. thing. but... Um, he tried to hang himself and it didn't work. Yeah, we the rock. we get into those kind of story type concepts. Yeah, well maybe he jumped and the rope snapped and he fell down to the field and the, there was a rock there and he split his guts open. Yeah, we don't I don't know. It's, that would be kind of logical. I mean, rope snapped, but who knows? We'll leave that one to God until we can get to that study in Greek, and maybe even then it's just up to God. Um, so Jesus does identify Peter as one of the clean ones, but also says there is some or one among him them or him who are not completely clean. What Jesus is telling Peter is this. The one who has had a complete cleansing doesn't need a complete cleansing again. He only needs his feet washed. Now this is entirely in line with the understanding of Peter's cultural day and age, which incorporated a community bathhouse. Now the Roman history and civilization is known for this. So, are, so is the Greek. Uh, if you got dirty as a citizen back then, you wouldn't didn't have plumbing in your house, you didn't have any of this kind of stuff. You would have to go to the community bathhouse to clean. And they had one for the men, had one for the women, and they would go in there, and when they needed that complete cleansing, they would go, they'd take the, the distance, they'd take all their bath and body works stuff, and all the sponges, and the candles, and the lilies, no. They'd probably just walk into the bathhouse, disrope, and go in and clean themselves. Um, now, once they've completed their cleansing and, and washed completely, they would return back to their home. But the problem was that because they didn't have Nike and Adidas closed-toed shoes, their foot would get dirty. Your feet would get dirty really being protected only by the sandal in which it was bound so you've got dirty feet and a clean body and this just doesn't do well for those of us with cdo also known as ocd for those who don't have it because of this the individual would, would wash his feet once more after returning home to restore his body to a clean state he wouldn't go back to the bathhouse and take a complete bath because then he'd start walking back and go oh my feet are dirty I have to go back if you've ever gone camping and if ever tried to wash yourself in like a wash basin or something at camp your feet are the worst things ever to keep clean camping or go to the beach or something. Take oh, off your God. shoes and then try to get the sand off of it. Good luck. Forget it. Okay. So it's, it's very well documented culturally um, that wash basins were available upon entering a house for this purpose of cleaning, cleaning your feet off. Um, typically, if you're a guest in a house, the cleansing would be accomplished by a servant. The same would go for as if you own the house and you returned your servant would then wash your feet. This is, again, part of Peter's initial reluctance for Jesus to wash his feet. Um, I'm not sure we can call Peter's statement initial reluctance. I I think that's more of an emphatic, there's no way you're going to do this. Um, So because of that servant concept, Peter didn't want Jesus to wash his feet. Uh, Being the Lord and teacher, um, he shouldn't have that role and that kind of menial task ascribed to him. Throughout the passage in John 13, Jesus uses two different Greek words to identify the type of cleansing occurring. The first being a partial wash, nipso. The second being a complete cleansing, le luminos. Through these words, Jesus teaches his disciples the concept of eternal security as well as the confession of sins. Jesus told Peter in verse 8, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Part comes from the Greek word meros, which means the allocated portion due a partner. Font didn't come through. Bear with me and my CDO. Okay, "Meros" from that English word "part" means the allocated portion due a partner. Okay. There we go. Now, interestingly enough, is this concept of partnership um, here and Jesus? Again, isn't referring to salvation because there's already a partnership established. Uh, but he's referring to Peter partnering in Jesus' work. Now, Jesus' work was not his own. It was his father's work. You can look at Luke 2.49 when Jesus was found in the temple by his parents at a young age. And they said, don't you know I'm about my father's business? And then John 4.34 and 9.4, Jesus is making statements similar to the, this one that um, he is about the father's work. And his, his work is to do the father's will. We share in that work when we accept Christ as our Savior. We become a part of the body of Christ. Jesus being the head, the word being the mind, and then the people in the body, the church, actually working with the head through the body, or through the mind, to accomplish this under the power of the Holy Spirit. So, upon salvation, the believer enters into what we call fellowship with God as well. So he's placed in Christ, that top circle. But he also enters into fellowship with God. Fellowship is a term derived from the Greek word koinonia, which refers to having a share in something with another. Again, it establishes or expresses the concept of equal partnership in the sharing of benefits and rewards. The rewards and benefits are the result of the believer's work. This is a study that we probably should do because we keep mentioning this concept of good works and bad works. Um, And maybe we'll get into that in our next or second from next session. Two, two, Two down the road, if you can follow that logic. The fellowship or partnership and the sharing of benefits and rewards is what Jesus is referring to in verse 8. He's not referring to salvation, but to fellowship, that partnership. In doing so, Jesus establishes the concept of foot washing as an analogy and example of the necessary confession of sin in the believer's life. When the believer accepts Jesus as the Christ, he is bathed completely. Even the perfect tense is used here in every single reference to salvation where someone is saved or where someone is placed in Christ, you have a perfect tense used. Completed action with results that continue. The result that they're placed in Christ, the result that they're saved, uh, and that those results continue. So the perfect tense being used in all those situations identifies it, it's a complete action with results continuing on. But during the believer's daily life and walk with God, his feet get dirtied by sin. We walk where we ought not to. Sin separates us from fellowship with God, it therefore must be washed off of our feet, so that we, so that fellowship can be restored once more. We cannot have part with God if there is sin in our life. David in the Psalms, he he wrote something that struck me as, as an amazing thing uh, for us to recognize, and he said that if there is iniquity in my heart, God will not hear his prayers. That's a rough paraphrase again, but it's pretty pretty spot on uh, if I remember properly. If and he's talking to God, and he says, "I know if there's iniquity in my heart, if there's sin in my heart. You will not." Hear, this, hear my prayers. That's partly because of this concept that the fellowship with God does not have if there is sin in our life. If there is disagreement with God about the structure which God has created, that model of humanity with God being the initiator and man being the responder. So what happens for those of us with sin in our life, which is all of us? We must go through this process of foot washing in order to restore fellowship or our share with God in His work. If we have not washed our feet, we go about business that may or may not be prescribed by God, but is either way dirtied by the sin that we walk in. We cannot produce the righteousness of God outside of fellowship with Him. We walk far too often outside and trespass farther than we should from God's prescribed plan. Fellowship with God requires two things. First, submission to Him. And second obedience to him we cannot if we know that we are supposed to confess our sin and allow god to restore us to fellowship we cannot continue in sin once we know about sin that itself would be sin in other words if you know you've sinned and you're not dealing with it it's sin that you're not dealing with it if you are supposed to be in fellowship with god and you know that and the confession of sin must be account- or must be appropriated to put you back in fellowship with god and you choose not to, you are sinning there as well. We walk where we ought to, ought not to, so often. And we are out of fellowship at least 99.9% of the time. Because fellowship with God means 100% agreement with his structure and his plan. That's a pretty high standard. And that's why it takes faith or depends upon him to accomplish it. We cannot depend upon ourselves to do that. We can't even bring ourselves to the point of recognizing our own sin. We may say, yeah, I know that's wrong, but I did it because of this and justify and whatnot. No doesn't work that way. You are either in fellowship or out of fellowship. There is no, well, God understands. God understands. He understands it's sin. We need to understand that as well and identify that we need to be back in fellowship. Our feet must be washed when we walk or we ought not to so that we can be restored again to God's work and God's plan. Without this, we do not produce good works. We produce works that will burn up. So, through washing the feet of his disciples, Jesus taught three truths relative to the Christian life. The first being, serve one another. If the teacher and Lord of all is willing to stoop down and wash feet, then so willing should be the teacher and the Lord's servants. Number two, once an individual has been completely cleansed, he does not need to be completely cleansed again. Again, this is a reference to salvation. Once a believer, once an individual has been completely saved, he does not need to be completely saved again. You cannot be completely saved and then subject again to destruction. If that's the case, you weren't completely saved in the first place. To be completely saved means it's a once and you're done. You're not subject again to destruction or potential death. Number three, when the believer's feet get dirty because of sin, he needs to wash them before he can have any fellowship with Jesus and God. This means that we cannot understand God's will for our lives unless we are in fellowship with him. We must be in fellowship with God. We must be in submission to him. We must be in complete dependence upon him in order for us to understand his will and for for us to allow him to teach us his truth in order for us to operate from divine viewpoint. Now, starting next week, when we come to Genomai, so long as I remember, which I've been waiting to do this for a long time, so I don't think that will be an issue, we will begin our study with about 30 seconds for giving us each the opportunity to confess any known sin and change our status from being out of fellowship to in fellowship. This is something that needs to happen and should have probably been taught from the get-go so that we can actually understand the doctrine of God, because those outside of fellowship do not understand God's Word. They do not understand God's doctrines. When we understand this concept, it changes our walk entirely. It begins to be not about the shame or the embarrassment or the guilt that we feel for sin that we've committed. It begins to be and understand that this is not beneficial to us and in order for us to do what God wants we need to stop feeling guilty and sad and sorry for ourselves and choose to let him pick us up and cleanse us off the way we do that is through confession we will look at that process next week but I will give you the opportunity next week um, so long as I remember to confess any sin before you go now confession and we'll get to this next week but a confession of sin is is to God and him alone we transgress against him alone consequences of our sin do affect others and we need to deal with that consequence but our sin is only to god he alone is the one worthy of judging it the process of foot washing or feet washing is identified in first john 1 9 as the believer's confession of known sin this confession of sin restores the believer once again to fellowship with god including the benefits and rewards of god's world system if you want to operate in divine viewpoint if you want to understand god's will for your life for the moment that you're in you must be dependent upon Him to the point that you're willing to not even know what He wants for you in that moment because you're dependent upon Him to give it to you when the moment is right. It's a tricky thing. It can kind of be, um, I guess, redundant or tautological if you want. It stems, though, from this concept that we have to be in complete dependence, and that is fellowship with God. Without that dependence, we're not in fellowship. We can't understand God's world system and His will for us. We have then this diagram, which we will add uh, other parts to. Before we do that, though, let me explain a little bit about what I have done, uh, because it looks slightly different. Uh, I thought I did this with the first one too, but apparently not. There is that dot now in the circle. Okay, that dot represents the believer who is placed in Christ by God and is positionally secure. Remember that word periousion um, in Titus 2:14, where it says a people for His own possession. Is that concept of a dot encompassed by a circle? Usion is the dot. Carry around, being a dot encompassed by a circle. It shows ownership, it shows boundary, it shows location. All of that exists with that dot and circle diagram. You belong to Christ if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And in Him you find and have eternal life. Okay, so tonight we add a couple of things. We had a bottom circle, which we identify as fellowship. Now in the top circle we have eternal life from zoace. The bottom circle we have spiritual life from Zoe's eternal life and spiritual life coincide eternal life is usually referenced for the time after you leave this earth we have eternal life right now in this moment if we are in fellowship we have in fact the very life of christ his eternal life if we are in fellowship with god if we're operating outside of fellowship with god because of sin we're not operating in spiritual capacity okay spiritual life eternal life coincide spiritual life refers to now we're looking at the concept more of the walk are you spiritually walking right now, or are you carnally walking? So to add that in, we've got this identification of James 1, 14 to 15, that a believer or an individual is tested when he is drawn away and enticed by his own lust, and when he gives in volitionally to his desired the desire that he has for the thing that has baited the trap, um, his lust takes him to that, makes him one, and sin is accomplished. That takes him out of fellowship. When sin is in your life, you're out of fellowship. You cannot have, be, have sin in your life and be in fellowship. That is what we call carnality or carnal living. It's the opposite of spiritual, spirituality or spiritual living. So as we look at this in, in James, and this is why we're getting to this point, um, as we look at the themes that James is teaching about, he says this is what it means to be truly spiritual. And we've said that it's faith in action. Okay? It's this concept that we have dependence upon something which produces an action. When we are living carnally, we're not operating truly spiritual. When we are in fellowship, we are operating truly spiritually. You have to be in fellowship in order to be truly spiritual. Confession of sin via First John one nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just in order to cleanse us of our sins and forgive us from all unrighteousness. Um, don't make too many assumptions about that verse just yet. We will look at it next session, at least at this point. Uh, that's the plan. There are some interesting things to note about that verse uh, as far as what God does and what we do in that part. Um that restores us, that confession restores us to fellowship. So when you sin, you confess your sin. You don't have to confess every single sin. If you confess one single sin, and I'm just giving you this now for free because I don't want to make you wait till next week for this. If you confess one single sin, you're back in fellowship. Now, it may be that you've got a mental attitude that you knew you sinned, and let's say you stole a candy bar, hypothetical, right? We like stealing candy bars, hypothetically. So you steal a candy bar, but the attitude was that you were entitled to it. So you confess the sin that. You stole the candy bar, but this mindset that you have immediately takes you back out of fellowship because you felt entitled to it and because you have an attitude of of entitlement. So in your personal life, you may confess a sin, but if you have a mindset that is your operational norm at that point, you may need to confess that also. Okay. That'll make a little more sense next week and the weeks following. Um, But fellowship is broken by sin. It's restored through confession of sin and we are commanded to be filled with the spirit which occurs in our experience not in our salvation that word filled means saturated to the point of control again this is our sponge going up and down in the water wash basin it's a reference to our experiential or our fellowship with god a relationship with god that's ephesians 5:18 first john 1:7 says walk in the light we're supposed to walk and that word walk comes from peripatete which is like peripotato but just go potete at the end here right? potato to potete That concept is that as we walk, we place our feet in the light. Jesus is the light. He is also the way, the truth, and the life. So we know because of those things that we are supposed to be walking in obedience and following him, which we also find if we look at uh, his command in Luke 9.23 to follow him. If if anyone wants to come after him, we must deny ourselves and follow him. So we have to walk in the light or follow in his path um, in order to have fellowship with God. That doesn't mean do exactly what he did. It means live the way he did, in submission, in fellowship with God. Romans 6, 4 says to walk in newness of life. That newness of life is a reference to the spiritual life that you have now because of the eternal life you have in Christ Jesus. These are simultaneous to your point in which you believe. These are just three of the many things that and many verses that reference our fellowship or our walk. Most of the cons, or contradict, or apparent contradictions with eternal security verses, and you've got people that it. I don't know how versed you are in this debate, but there are a number of people say, well, this verse says you, you lose your salvation. Well, this verse says you keep your salvation. And, and you get them all across the board. Most of the, the reason that those seem to contradict is because the, of a lack of understanding of positional and um, spiritual, I guess we'll call it or experiential truth. If you understand positional and experiential truth, a lot of those disharmonies go away. There are only a select few that you actually have to do a little bit of work to understand what they're saying, it pretty much just washes out. And there may be one or one, two, or three that are a little more difficult to just wash out that way. But understand these two two doctrines, positional truth and experiential truth, and um, changes that concept because most of the time, where it appears that we lose our salvation, it's an experiential truth passage. Is that how you'd address sacrifice to themselves again, the Son of God. Hebrews 6, basically, yeah, that's what it's talking about, is that they are believers, they are saved, but until they stop going back to the old sacrificial ways and crucifying into Christ um, afresh, they're out of fellowship because that's no longer God's command. God's command now is to walk walk according, and be filled with the Spirit, walk in the light, and walk in the news of life. They're going back and doing what God commanded them to do previously. Well, he says, no, that's done. Ephesians, and then we're talking about Hebrews 6. So, if they continue to do the sacrifices that God says are no longer his norm. They're sinning at this point because now God's changed requirements to this new plan, this new process. Which means they're out of fellowship. Yeah. So they're not... They're not their yeah. Um, if that's confusing, go home and read Hebrews 6, 4, recognize it's talking to Jews first. Um, and that's the audience that it's written to. And then recognize that this is after the cross, and these are believing Jews who have, instead of continued on in dependence upon God through the Holy Spirit, have now gone and said, okay, we're going to go back to the sacrificial system, and while they do that, they're disobeying God, who says that sacrificial system is null and void at this point. It has been completed through Christ on the cross, Christ on the cross. So there's a brief summary of it um, we can look at it a little more, but yeah, that's that's a great example of this concept that if you understand positional versus experiential, it washes out the argument. I right, know that's used a lot to support yeah. the opposite of internal security. I don't know what is there a fancy name for that. The opposite Arminianists yeah, on the the very <clears throat> conservative side have that concept. Or legalistic, I guess I should call it side so have that concept. Um I I don't know that there is like an eternal, uneternal security name for it. It's just eternal security or no kind of thing. Or oh, yeah? They may have termed it something in the last few years, but I have, and I'm sure. I mean, someone's got it somewhere. But you know, finite, finite salvation, or I don't know, uneternal salvation, whatever you want to call it. Either way. In fact, actually, you no. Know, the Reformed theology does have a term for it. You're right, and I can't. I can't remember right now, but Reformed Theology typically identifies that they weren't ever saved in the first place, or they weren't chosen in the first place. Uh, it just appeared that they were, and then they stopped doing what they were supposed to be doing, and now it appears that they weren't. So, but we'll leave that alone tonight. Me and the temporary insecure. It's the opposite. That may be some. Yeah, We'll figure it out. All right. So this is what we call a positional truth diagram. And the reason it's not positional and experiential is because this does deal ultimately with our position. Experiential truth fits underneath the umbrella of positional truth. Okay, so this is a positional truth. Our position is either in Christ or out of Christ. Our position is either in fellowship or out of fellowship. If we've accepted Christ as our Savior, we are placed in Christ, and positionally we are sanctified because we are in Christ. Our walk, however, is either positionally carnal or positionally in fellowship, spiritual. So you are either at one point in time in sin or in fellowship. You're carnal or spiritual. When you're spiritual, you understand things spiritually. When you're carnal, you understand things humanly. Romans 12, 1 and 2 now begins to make a big difference. And I almost want to just do another side study and go right into that. But we would never get through anything if we kept doing side studies because it, it, we just end up doing this all the way around to the whole Bible. But... Um, the concept that we're supposed to be transformed, and that transformation only occurs when we are in fellowship. That's an interesting thing to go home and ponder. And that's it for tonight. Next week we'll look at the process through First John one nine of uh, our next session. If we don't make it next week, through the process of First John one nine of confessing known sin. Any questions from tonight? Definitely.